Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. Today we're going to be talking about recent events in Guinea. There was a coup on the 5th of September, which has caused a great deal of concern in the region. And with me today to discuss it are Benedict Manzin, our Africa analyst, as well as Edie Lipton, our Africa's associate analyst. Welcome. Let me start by asking you, Ben, what exactly has happened in Guinea? What are the events which uh, sort of led up to and have taken place since the 5th of September? Well, I think by now most people are familiar with the events of the 5th of September, but just to summarise, in the early hours of Sunday, an elite military unit, the 300-man-strong GPS, stormed the presidential palace in Conakry and seized President Alpha Conde. Later that night, the coup leaders, led by GPS leader Colonel um, Mamadi Dumbuya, spoke on national television declaring that the constitution had been suspended and borders were temporarily closed. Dumbuya subsequently stated that he was motivated to act against the government due to anger, corruption, growing authoritarianism and the failure to adequately distribute the revenues garnered from the country's considerable and extractive sector. However, it appears more likely that the coup was a result of rising disputes between both the government and the military more broadly and a specific issue that Dumbuya faced due to competition among senior members of Conde's Malinke ethnic group. Dumbuya, a former member of the French Foreign Legion who received staff officer training at the École de Guerre in France, was tasked with forming the GPS on Condé's instruction in 2018 in order to address the mounting terror threats emanating from the Sahel. However, Dumbuya significantly angered the defence minister, Mohamed Diane, considered by many to have been Condé's preferred successor, when he openly told a French military conference that he had been struggling to secure adequate resources from the government for the force. This marks the beginning of a steady decline in relations between the two men, both of whom are members of the prominent Malinke ethnic group. Diane felt that Dumbuya might threaten his capacity to carry the support of his own community if he were to pursue the presidency, and so wanted to sideline him. And to do this, he sought to create a rival unit, the BIR, which was established by decree in June earlier this year, and he transferred the GPS out of the capital. This steady process of sidelining Dumboya drove his motivation, but it appears he also received the okay to act against Conde by other members and branches of the military, as evidenced by the presence of General Ibrahim Balde, the Gendarmerie Chief of Staff, during Dumboya's first post-coup appearance. Relations between the security forces and the government have been steadily fraying. As Conde sought to cement his power, the military were repeatedly called upon to quash dissent and violently put down protests, resulting in frequent deaths, particularly around those demonstrations led by the National Front for the Defence of the Constitution, the FNDC, as Conde sought to amend the Constitution to permit him to run for a third term. This frequent use of violence against civilians drove concerns among senior figures in the military that if they continue to be utilised in this manner, they may be targeted by international human rights organisations and potentially by institutions like the International Criminal Court. Combined with actions by Parliament, which were allegedly seeking to cut salaries to the military, this acted as the catalyst uh, for action to remove Condé and his government. Thank you very much, Ben. There's fascinating background to that story that 
has taken a while to come out. Initially, I recall that it had been thought this was largely due to the extreme levels of poverty in the country. I think nearly 50% of the population lived below the poverty line, despite extraordinary mineral wealth in the country. The fact that people were unhappy with Conde's controversial election last year, in which there were multiple allegations of corruption and vote rigging, and you know a lot of corruption since. But it sounds as though, although those are factors, actually the, the old story of rivalry between key political figures has played a big part. So I suppose then what would be really interesting to understand is where we think this is going next. Perhaps, Edie, I could ask you, what, what do you think is going to happen next for, for Guinea? Absolutely. So Guinea has a wealth of natural resources and that's allowed the country so far to develop key international business partners under Conde, particularly with countries like Russia and China. Guinea has the largest reserves of bauxite in the world. That's the material processed into aluminium and 55% of that is exported to China. So the uprising on the 5th of September caused fear over supply disruption and that resulted in an increase of the price of aluminium. However, on the 6th of September, a day after the coup, Colonel Mamadi Doumba announced that the transitional government would honour the country's commitments to their financial and economic partners, continuing to fulfil their mining contracts. So the Yinta lifted measures implemented the day before, like the curfew on mines, and they reopened the land and sea borders that they previously closed. So mining companies have been urged to carry on with their operations and so far businesses have reported that they have experienced no disruptions to their activities in Guinea. Because the mining industry makes up such a key part of Guinea's economy, it's likely that coup leaders will ensure that there are no disruptions to business operating in the country. But despite the fact that there's no current disruptions in the supply chain, for bauxite, the prices of aluminium processors still haven't come down as the future of Guinea is still looking quite unclear. So looking at what's happened since the coup, leaders have announced that the government of national unity would be set up to lead the transition to civilian rule, but they've not yet announced a time frame or any other details for that transition. The leader of Guinea's main opposition party, Salou Delian Diallo, has said that he would designate members of his own party to participate and he stated that he hopes that economic community of West African states would support the transitional government's development of a process that eventually leads to free and fair elections. In terms of the international response, the coup has been condemned by leaders around the world, including those with key business interests in the country like Moscow and Beijing. The African Union and ECOWAS have suspended Guinea from its bodies and ECOWAS has threatened the country with sanctions. Today, they will hear the findings of the delegation that was sent to meet coup leaders in Conakry last week, and they will decide what measures should be adopted to pressure Guinea to return to civilian rule. I think it's likely that if sanctions are imposed, it will be for a short period until the Inter has decided the transition period and released President Alpha Conde, which are terms previously speculated on. The UN announced on Monday that it would not pressure Guinea on its transition, and it said that the decision must be made by Guineans ahead of the launch of consensus talks um, between military and civilian factions. These talks will be followed closely, of course, by the African Union and ECOWAS over the coming weeks. However, the talks have the potential really to drive domestic unrest over the shape of the future transitional government. And that's because if the coup leaders attempt to strengthen their own power and exclude groups previously favoured by the public, 
there's the potential that they will lose the public support that they've so far benefited from. So working out these details will be really critical for ensuring the stable return for Guinea. Coming in on that point, you see a real challenge for this new transitional government, which is sort of demonstrated by uh, their competing objectives. On one hand, they say they want to maintain Guinea's current mining contracts. They want to maintain the flow of wealth coming into the country because of bauxite. And at the same time, they're also saying they want to work more closely with civilian groups and the political opposition. Many of these parties have pointed to the disparity and the lack of wealth coming from these mining contracts that is reaching the wider Guinean population. So it'll be hard for the for the junta to marry their attempts to maintain the current status quo in the mining industry and satisfy the demands of their new political partners. So that is an area of potential friction going forward, which might drive some domestic unrest and potentially fracture the relationship between the military members of a transition and the civilian members of a transition. Thanks, Edie. Thanks, Ben. That's obviously a lot to process in all of that. But overall, I would say that, you know, perhaps initial indications that talks might proceed between, as you described, civilian and military and other stakeholders, that there would be an interim national government, there would be commitment to return to the, the constitution, and the release of Conde, you know, may well be undone by other factors, as you said, uh, all of which has then have a potential impact on, you know, that critical mining sector at a time when globally, of course, we're seeing a, a sort of super cycle in terms of commodity prices. This could impact more widely global economy in, in some ways. But finally, perhaps, Ben, could you comment on, on how events uh, as they unfold have done and will do in Guinea could impact on the wider region and whether or not ECOWAS is showing itself in this context to be effective. I mean, as Edie mentioned, they've threatened sanctions and are likely to impose them at least until a timetable has been agreed for return to government, democratic government, etc. But are they bolstering their reputation here? Are they seen as being impartial players in this process? And have they boosted their reputation by the actions they've taken so far? Yeah, I mean, just speaking from the perspective of ECOWAS, you know, the, the problem is, is pretty apparent. You know, how do they maintain stability, but also respond effectively in a manner which discourages future coups? Obviously, ECOWAS feels that it must discourage military coups. And this is not just because of some ideological commitment to democracy, but because a number of the governments that comprise ECOWAS struggle with low levels of popular support and high levels of domestic unrest and therefore rely on the military to maintain order. They cannot have it become in any way an acceptable norm that generals and other senior military figures just remove governments when they get tired of them. However, this does increasingly appear to be becoming something of a regional norm. Mali, an ECOWAS member, has seen two coups within a year, admittedly led by the same cast of characters, while Chad, not a member of ECOWAS, but does work alongside ECOWAS member states in multilateral bodies such as the G5 Sahel, also underwent a sort of dynastic coup in April. But its capacity to effectively intervene has been curtailed by emerging situations, particularly in the Sahel. While ECOWAS previously intervened militarily during constitutional crises, such as in the case of Gambia following the 2016 election, this was clearly not an option in Mali not only because of the country's relative strength opposed to that of the Gambia, but also because of the limited willingness 
on the part of ECOWAS member states to involve themselves fully in Mali's conflicts with jihadist groups and take on responsibility of this challenge. So instead, the group imposed sanctions on Mali, including the obstruction of financial flows, until a transition period was agreed. This established a recent precedent, which we're likely to see repeated. There is limited willingness or capacity to engage militarily with Guinea, particularly given regional focus on the challenge posed by jihadist groups. And so ECOWAS is, is pretty much forced to impose sanctions against Guinea. But it's, it seems unlikely that this is going to be very effective or really demonstrate that ECOWAS has any power. The, the hunter appears to you know, be very cognizant that this is ECOWAS's only realistic option. And therefore, they're already acting quickly to demonstrate some goodwill and legitimize themselves, you know, reaching out to the political opposition, as mentioned by Edie, uh, reaching out to civil society groups, including the previously mentioned FNDC, and making it so that they should be in a position to meet the criteria set out by ECOWAS, such as a, a set transition period, relatively quickly, meaning that the body will be forced to lift sanctions quite quickly and, and mitigating their impact. There's no real prospect that ECOWAS are going to demand the reinstation of Conde. Conde had made himself quite unpopular with the body over recent years. You know, his drive towards authoritarianism, his successful changing of the constitution to allow him to stay a third term, this all damaged his relationship with his regional partners. And so th there is no real appetite among them or limited appetite to, to demand anything on his part other than that he is released, which is something that the Hunter have demonstrated that they are willing to agree to. But going forward, we, we do expect that this is going to disrupt the relations between Guinea and ECOWAS member states you know, throughout this transition period. That disruption is going to impede region-wide efforts to address mounting challenges and coordinate an effective response to the Sahel conflict, which in the context of that issue, that will ensure that they can't rely on regional partners. It's going to sustain countries like Mali, Niger and Burkina Faso's dependence on Western forces to combat jihadist groups is a significant concern given that countries like France are in the process of reducing their commitments. Thanks very much, Ben. Thank you, Edie. That was a fascinating and very detailed uh, insight into what is going on in Guinea at the moment and how things might evolve. We'll certainly be keeping a close eye on it over the next few months as by the sounds of it, it could go in a number of different directions. And I hope then we'll be able to have you both back and to give us more insights. But thank you for now. And now with a look at events in the coming weeks, let me introduce James Bath, our North America analyst. So several of our desks will be looking ahead to the Quad Summit hosted at the White House on the 24th of September. That will include leaders of India, Japan and Australia and, of course, the US for the first in-person quadrilateral security discussion in Washington. In light of the recently signed AUKUS or AUKUS pact, which will allow Australia to build nuclear power submarines for the first time, this summit could lead to a fresh escalation in tensions between China and the US. On the other side of the Atlantic, in Russia, state Duma elections will take place from the 17th until the 19th of September. United Russia is expected to remain the dominant political force and government repression, which has been successful over the last few months, should keep the risk of mass protests limited, although not impossible. On the 19th of September, Israel will launch a pilot program to reopen the country to tourists. The plans will allow organized groups who are vaccinated to visit Israel in a hope to provide much needed boost to the tourism industry. 
but will provide a good indication of whether or not the vaccine program there has worked, which could have big implications for other countries around the world looking to do the same. Thank you very much, James. If you'd like to learn more about any of these issues or our main topic of discussion today, Guinea, please do get in touch as always via our info at sibylline.co.uk email. Thanks very much. 